This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Sarah Isger with Jonah Goldberg, Steve Hayes, John McCormick, and drumroll, Mike Warren straight from New Hampshire. We're obviously going to start with you. What's the mood? Uh, the mood is, is the primary over yet? That seems to be what Republicans uh, are asking. Um, Donald Trump wins big in Iowa. He's ahead in all the polls. Nikki Haley is actually rising in the polls. It's just she's not rising enough. And Donald Trump is topping out of over 50%. So there's definitely a sense from the uh, sort of Republican operative class here in New Hampshire, that it's kind of over. Um, but also, if you go to these Haley events, um, there's there's some energy here. She's got a full day of events on Friday, on Saturday. Judge Judy is coming on Sunday to rally for Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. So um, there's a sense here that it's maybe Haley's last stand um, and, and people who are worried about the party renominating Donald Trump are, are sort of... Um, viewing it that way and trying to see if they can, uh, you know, stop it here. But uh, there's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of uh, hope. OK, what's her best case scenario on Tuesday night in New Hampshire? Yeah, Her best case scenario is that a bunch of independents, including independents who generally vote for Democrats, uh, but who will be eligible to vote in uh, Tuesday's Republican primary, come out to support her. Um, you know, I've talked to somebody who's doing a bunch of work. They have a little bit of money to send out mailers and text messages to those type of voters. Uh, and, and he says, if we can get everybody to come out at those levels, we can get her within five or 10 percent of Donald Trump. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's not ideal. I don't think that's enough, but we'll see. I mean, that I guess that's what she's hoping for, to have all of those voters who don't want Donald Trump to get the nomination, no matter if they're Republicans or independents or independent leading Democrats to come out for. So their best case scenario is still a second place finish. Yes. And you've been hearing both Nikki Haley and Governor uh, Chris Sununu, who is the, the governor here in New Hampshire, who is with her almost every stop. Uh, he's a popular guy. He's been reelected three times uh, as governor uh, here. And uh, they've been sort of moving the goalposts from, you know, she's not fighting for second place, which is what she was saying before she got third place in Iowa, uh, to, um, you know, she wants to do better. She said this on Thursday night at the CNN Town Hall. She wants to do better than she did in Iowa. Uh, she got, what, 19% in Iowa. She's polling uh, somewhere in the 30s here in New Hampshire. She's going to do better than she did in Iowa. Uh, so that's sort of, uh, that's, that's not, uh, that's not the most difficult hurdle for her to jump over. Jonah, you know, coming in third in Iowa and then second in New Hampshire is actually good momentum, except for the fact that the person who won Iowa and New Hampshire is going to be the same person. And we've never had a nominee for either political party that hasn't won Iowa or New Hampshire. So I guess the question is, so what if she comes in second, even a relatively close second in New Hampshire? Why is that a path forward? It's not. It's not. I mean, it, like it's the idea that she's going to build Mo by coming in second in a two person race in South Carolina or a distant second in a two person race on Super Tuesday doesn't work. Right. So. I think their thinking here is. There are only two scenarios. One is the deus ex machina thing, which does seem to loom over this entire thing, right? Everyone seems to think that there's a non-trivial chance, because there is a non-trivial chance, that something takes Trump out of this race, a 
a criminal case is the most plausible one, a health emergency, uh, a sudden, sudden onset reasonableness and sobriety among the Republican electorate, which is the least likely scenario. Um, but so like people want to have some sort of, uh, they want to stay in it to win it is their sort of theory. And I get it, but you can still do that by suspending your race. And, uh, the other part of it might be that they actually think they still might have a chance here to win New Hampshire. And if they actually do win New Hampshire, if they set the expectations lower, then it actually does seem like a big mo moment and they have nothing to lose, right? If you're thinking, well, I want to stay in it. If we say we're going to win here and don't, then I got to get out. If we say we're going to come in second and we win it, then that's big and we can ride that. So it's sort of, uh, it kind of, it's kind of like make the best of a bad situation scenario. But as it is right now, you know, like two weeks ago, I chastised you ever so politely and chivalrously for preemptively talking, doing postmortem talk about why Trump won the, the, the primary and is going to be the nominee. It does not feel at this juncture uh, to be nearly so irresponsible and uncivic to start having that conversation. It sort of feels like I used to uh, do very poorly in school because I would just write the answer on the bottom of my homework and I wouldn't show my work. It feels like you, like all of my teachers, got mad that I didn't show my work, even though my answer was right. And you know what? My teachers were right, but so was my answer. So I don't know, man. Uh, John, what are Republican primary voters saying in New Hampshire right now? What are they? What are the policies they're interested in? Why are they supporting Donald Trump? Why are some supporting Nikki Haley? What? What are they talking about most? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I was on the ground in Iowa and the, you know, the Nikki Haley supporters I talked to, now take it with a grain of salt, these are very highly energetic, active and informed people. You know, there are 1.7 million voters in Iowa uh, in the 2020 election and 110,000 of them showed up to caucus. So the Nikki Haley voters I spoke to, they all knew to a person exactly what they were going to do if it ends up being a Biden-Trump rematch. You know, several of them said they'd vote for Biden. I heard some no labels talk, none of the above. Um, you know, the Trumpers that I talked to, I kind of uh, talked to a few of them, you know, what exactly, you know, were they thinking about DeSantis? And someone said, yeah, they really, you know, I like his governing. Uh, you know, he really did a great job with COVID. You know, but at the end of the day, just Trump's under attack from the media. And I mean, maybe are they repeating what they've heard on the media, the conservative media to justify a vote they were always going to make? I don't know, but this is what they are saying. They're actually, um, you know, using this. He's being unfairly maligned on this and this and that in the media, you know, the, 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 the indictments and such. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting in the fact that, you know, what the, what the Nikki Haley voters do, uh, in this likely, very extremely likely, uh, Trump-Biden rematch and among the highly informed, uh, caucus goers I talked to, they all seem to know exactly what they're going to do. Steve, there was an interesting op-ed in today's Wall Street Journal by Jerry Seib, what Republicans used to believe. I'll just read you a couple pieces of it. As Ronald Reagan was wrapping up his successful 1980 campaign for president, he gave a speech offering an expansive and idealistic view of America's role in the world. Quote, let it also be clear that we do not shirk history's call, that America is not turned inward, but outward toward others, still willing to stand by those who are persecuted or alone. And then he goes on to note, From trade and immigration to entitlements and the government's role in the country, today's GOP stands in strikingly different place compared with the party led by Ronald Reagan, either President Bush or presidential nominees Bob Dole, John McCain and Mitt Romney. Why? I think in large part because of Donald Trump. A couple of reasons. One, I I think when you look at the positions that used to define the Republican Party, they were positions that Republican Party leaders held and Republican Party rank and file, um, I think, to to a certain degree, held as well. But in many cases, they were sort of following the leaders. And I think, you know, one of the, the, the chief mistakes that I made heading into the Trump era as I looked at the Republican electorate was to believe that when Republicans called themselves conservatives, it meant the same thing that I meant when I called myself a conservative, that they were sort of deeply uh, committed to these policy decisions and that, that that drove their choices in, you know, House races, Senate races, gubernatorial races, presidential elections as well. It turns out they don't care as much about policy as we thought, and we've seen that reflected in the polling. We've spoken here about how, uh, about the times when, when pollsters have asked 
Republicans about you know, free market health care plans and uh, and so versus sort of socialized health care plans or state driven health care plans. And the responses are generally negative to the to the big government health care plans. But if you tell them that that's what Donald Trump favors, they flip almost directly and you can get two thirds, 70 percent of Republican voters backing a health care a set of health care policy proposals that are not that far from Obamacare if they're told that that's what Donald Trump wants. I think we've seen Trump, because the party has become more a cult of personality, drive these these policy preference changes uh, over the past eight years. It was an interesting moment. I was at a Ron DeSantis um, town hall in Hampton Beach, New Hampshire on Tuesday or Wednesday. I guess it was Wednesday. Um, and he took a question about Nikki Haley and her policy positions. And what DeSantis is very clearly trying to do is frame Haley as the the rhino in the race, the squish, you know, someone who's sort of a globalist rhino. He he uses a lot of the language of the the Trump loving right. Um, but he did so in particular on foreign policy and national security, which I thought was interesting. He spent uh, a good moment on Nikki Haley's comment that the United States needs uh, not only a Department of Defense, but a Department of Offense. And DeSantis took that opening to, to make an, an argument that basically she just wants war everywhere all the time. And that that is no longer where Republican voters are, have to be choosier, don't want to be involved in all of these places. Uh, and I think we've seen that shift. Most of the shift has been driven by Donald Trump and his policy preferences and the Republican Party's um, sort of cult-like uh, devotion to Donald Trump. All right. I want to disagree with Steve and see where the rest of you fall between the Steve versus Sarah theory of the Republican Party. So my theory is that actually Republican voters will get behind whatever their nominee or the leader of the party is saying policy wise, meaning the policy was never driving the voters, that the voters were driving the policy, if that makes sense. And that the reason that we're seeing this big shift is for the same reason you're seeing shifts globally, right? The 2008 financial crisis is a good explanation. It's probably not the only one. Um, but that is driving the realignment between the two parties along educational lines. That's why the Republican Party is becoming more racially diverse, for instance. It's obviously not policy-driven. It's something else driving that. So Donald Trump, in that sense, um, yes, it, they are supporting those policies because of Donald Trump, but that's way too narrow a focus. They're supporting it because Donald Trump is the leader of the party. Why is Donald Trump the leader of the party? Because of those larger tectonic plates moving across both parties, and that if Ronald Reagan had come out and said he was for big government, um, Republican primary voters would have been far more in favor of big government then as well. So let's go around the horn on the Steve versus Sarah theories. Let's start with Mike Warren in New Hampshire. Sarah, I think you're right in a general sense. Um, I do think it, it, so much of this has to do in particular with Donald Trump the person. I mean, everything about Donald Trump as a celebrity, as a sort of idea in the, in, in the public's mind, in his own sort of uh, approach to politics and demagoguery, and always being able to kind of sense where the id of a crowd is and going in that direction is so important. I mean, I, I guess if if Donald Trump didn't exist, maybe our political tectonic plate shifting would have created him somehow. But I, I don't really buy that. I think you had to have somebody like him to to sort of uh, uh, to sort of address those big shifts that you're talking about. And and I do wonder if uh, somebody of his uh, political talents who was of a different bent uh, on some of these issues might have been able to uh, change, subtly change the direction uh, in a, in a different way. Maybe it would still be more populist, but it would be different on some, on some other things. I mean, it's, it's, so I guess what I'm saying is it's, it's dependent on the personality uh, just as much uh, perhaps as on uh, the sort of environmental uh, factors that you mentioned. Joan, I guess part of this question is, um, does policy matter or is policy just what people tell themselves to rally their team, but it was always going to be team sports first? 
Yeah, again, I, I think this is one of these things that everybody's a little right um, on. Uh, it's 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 not a binary thing. It's like a multifactorial kind of thing. I think Mike makes a very important point that a lot of this stuff is 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 immune to ideological or or strict um, policy analytical analysis kind of stuff because Trump does not care at all about policy, right? With the exception of like some immigration stuff and one or two at trade, both, you know, where on immigration, he's two thirds right, but bad at talking about it. And um, on trade where he's four fifths wrong and worse at talking about it. Um, he just doesn't care. Like you can, there, you can find YouTube videos of him changing his positions week to week on dramatic issues going from free market to socialist in, in sometimes in the same paragraph. Right. And I think that his celebrity, his 110% name ID, the fact that he had incepted himself into the minds of Fox and friends viewers for years, um, has, uh, made people care less about policy than they ever have before on the right. I do think policy mattered to more voters 10 years ago, even seven years ago, than it does now. And I think part of this has to do with the fact of the psychological sort of, uh, the sort of corruption that having to support Trump has inflicted on the right. You see it in pro-lifers, you see it, I think one of the things I will predict here is that you're gonna see it on, on gun issues at some point where he will, you see it on, on judges, I mean, you can go down a list, right? He will change his position and the voters have to go with him. I don't think Reagan could have become a pro-choicer in like 83 and held on to a lot of his voters. It would have caused a civil war in the Republican Party, right? I think if George H.W. Bush had, uh, you know, one of the reasons he lost in 1992 was because he went back on his no new taxes pledge, right? Some of this policy stuff used to matter more. And I think it matters less now because we've had a sort of a political generation that gave up on trying to impose or defend a consistent ideological line from Trump because he has none. And instead, the default position from talk radio right to cable news right um, to a lot of think tank right, you know, is I just trust his judgment, his instincts are right, and I'll go with him. If he says it, it must be right because that's the only safe harbor to avoid getting attacked by Trump world. And that has an effect that has a corrupting effect on an ideological and essentially an ideological coalition that said, like you can change. You know, I, I, I used to I used to make this argument about what happened to the Tea Parties. I think the Tea Parties were sincere for the most part. I spoke at a lot of Tea Party rallies. People would carry around their pocket copies of the Constitution and of Friedrich Hayek, Friedrich Hayek. They wanted to believe that they were ideologically serious people. And I think part of the thing in miniature that happened on the right was that they got, because they got, they still got called racists for it. They just kind of said, screw it, you know? And they became much more radicalized and much less committed to sort of ideological commitments and much more committed to just beating the other people. And Trump became their id. And um, the damage that is done to people when you have to defend somebody who's so hard to defend is you just lock in. You just don't want to hear any criticisms and you don't want to hear any arguments. And that's why the GOP right now doesn't care about arguments and policy. I don't think that'll last forever. But Jonah, see, to accept my worldview, my explanation of how campaigns and politics actually works in the United States, you're missing the entire point, which is George W. Or sorry, George H.W. Bush didn't lose because he broke his promise on no taxes because of taxes. He lost because of that because it was weakness. It was giving into the other side. It was a failure to play team sports. Right. So it was never the policy itself. You have to reimagine the whole thing. Yeah, I, I just disagree with that. Look, it's obviously true for some people. I mean, this is my point. It's sort of like, why are Jews liberal? Well, for some Jews, it's because of this. And for some Jews, it's because of that. It's an overdetermined phenomenon. There are definitely people out there on the right who just want strong like bull president. Right. And you meet them all the time and they want manliness and testicular fortitude and all that kind of stuff. And then there are, you would meet other people who are like, hey, you know, he's killing me on this trade policy or he's killing me on, on what he's doing on taxes. And it's a large coalition. Human beings have diversity to them. I don't think that this, this retroactive, we only ever cared about strength and, and vigor thing makes any sense if you look at 
who won a lot of primaries going back the last 50 years. I mean, George H.W. Bush did not get the nomination because he exuded manly, you know, testosterone rich, you know, uh, alpha maleness. Um, certainly going back to what were their options? Al Haig. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, look, but I, I just think monocausal explanations of these phenomena, I think, are always going to have problems. And I just think it's it's a checklist thing. And there are uh, they're going to be there. It contains multitudes. But I think directionally, you're both right about a lot of this. It's just that it's just not one explanation for any of it. See, the other reason that I don't think policy can actually be a good explanation for how campaigns or politics works is because the two parties' platforms have always been internally contradictory. It's always been just a coalition to put together 51%, basically, or as close as you can get. It hasn't been about a coherent worldview. But Steve... So I'll disagree with you with that, too. But we can, we can, we can take that in a skiff another time. Yeah. All right, all right. Yeah. Skiff coming, then. Uh, John, jump in. <laughs> yes, a few stray thoughts. Generally agree with Jonah that this is, you know, it's it's both. I mean, Trump... Well, why do, why do Republicans care, you know, or care less about or why have they abandoned entitlement reform? Well, Trump won the primary basically by getting a third of the vote in the primary. And then he set the tone for the whole party. Uh, he set the I mean, that's why that happened. And then even on other issues like, uh, you know, you look at the abortion issue in Iowa. I mean, Iowa is like, you know, evangelical central. You would think, you know, this is where Mike Huckabee won. This is where. Uh, you know, Ted Cruz and Rick Santorum won. You'd think if there was one issue where DeSantis could have made some inroads, it was hitting Trump for, you know, now saying that the heartbeat laws are terrible. It didn't move the needle at all. So that just shows, I mean, and so what did, what did the, you know, Trump voters say? What does what someone like Bob Vanderplatz, how does he explain that? Just that, well, they're loyal to him. They know this guy, you know, the, the loyalty runs deeper than any one issue and they can be loyal to him because of Roe v. Wade. But, and you can see this in the polls too. So I wrote, I wrote about this last week, you know, 70% of Iowans support their heartbeat law, Republicans, 70% of Iowa Republicans support that. But when asked, do you disagree with Trump on saying it was a terrible mistake? Uh, it's a somewhat different question. Only 52% would disagree with them. So there are, there are you know, 16% of the, 18% of the party uh, unwilling to disagree with Trump, even though they support a law. So that just shows you like the normal pull of partisanship um, on the minds of, of voters. And um, just lastly, I do think that, you know, Trump is so abnormal. Sometimes we, we don't look at him and his position through the normal lens of partisanship. I mean, I do think that if, you know, I don't know if this is Barack Obama running after losing one term, you know, 50% of Democrats would still support him just because he was their guy. They knew him. They, they would still stick with him. Um, and the same way with George W. Bush, if he lost in 2004, ran again four years later uh, after, you know, financial crash and, and, and everything, I think that, you know, yeah, half the party would have been with him just out of loyalty. And, um, and, and the fact that he is only pulling 52%, you know, that's obviously he's running away with the nomination, but he is a weak incumbent if you look at him through that lens. Steve, where I think that Trump himself, sort of in that great man theory of history, has changed the Republican Party, is that in my theory, where policy isn't what matters, but these coalitions and all, you know, these other factors, um, it was also still about winning. Like, who is the candidate who was most likely to win? I do think Trump has fundamentally changed the Republican Party because that is not a metric anymore. So while I don't think policy was ever a metric, I absolutely think electability was, and that Trump has convinced the Republican Party that losing is winning and that electability is no longer, should no longer be a metric as compared to fighting uh, the other team on different grounds that maybe aren't the election itself. Yeah, I guess I'm, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure where everybody really falls on this, on these two polls. I think the polls aren't as neatly defined as, as your framing fair. suggests. Totally I, fair. Like, I don't, I don't, like, I don't think you really believe that policy never mattered, which is effectively what you just said. I, I certainly, mm. my own position is, <laughs> okay, I mean, fair enough. I, I think policy mattered more um, in the Reagan era than it does today in terms of rank and file Republican voters. I definitely think that while some Republicans were frustrated with George W. Bush's capitulation on the no new taxes pledge, most of them were just really frustrated that he was raising taxes uh, and that he said he wasn't going to raise taxes. And this was sort of a, uh, an inviolable um, policy preference of Republican. But you're just sort of stating that as fact. Like, how do we prove that mine's wrong and yours right? Because I'm stating it. <laughs> that's, that's why you're, you're wrong. We should know that you're wrong. Um, 
but I but I think if you if you look at where um, I, I think your leadership point is 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 spot on. I mean, I think we have seen um, Republican rank and file follow these temporary leaders of the Republican Party on policy to a much greater degree than I anticipated. Again, at the beginning of the Trump era, I think if you look at we shouldn't under um, underestimate, undercount the importance of other elected Republicans following the leaders in these ways. I mean, the extent to which we've had, you know, top Republican officials, uh, elected officials just change positions overnight on some of these issues is is extraordinary. I mean, Rand Paul uh, was asked just yesterday, Trump put out a statement on Truth Social, which essentially um, says presidents should have total immunity, not essentially, actually explicitly says presidents should have total immunity all the time to commit whatever crimes they want to commit, because that's the only way to govern properly. That's not an exaggeration. That's actually what it says. Um, And you have somebody like Rand Paul, who was asked about this. Rand Paul, the, the, the country's probably best known libertarian, is asked about this and said, well, I haven't had time to look into the specifics. What? Rand Paul needs to look into the specifics of a claim from a would-be future chief executive that he can do whatever he wants, commit any crimes that he wants? This same Rand Paul who led the the, the filibuster against Barack Obama for wanting to supposedly drone American citizens in Starbucks. It was like the the craziest hypothetical that people didn't really, I think, care about. But this was Rand Paul taking it to Barack Obama. The the other one, you know, is Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio, John, you know, was very early in his reporting on Marco Rubio. And I spent a lot of time with him. I sort of embedded myself in his campaign for Senate when he was first elected. This was somebody who ran as a Tea Party Republican. I mean, that was his sort of main credential. That's the way he described himself. He was a a small government guy. He was a free market guy. When he launched his 2016 presidential campaign, I was in Iowa with him. I was in New Hampshire with him. Do you know what he led with policy-wise when he started his stump speeches in those two places? Lowering the corporate tax rates making the United States competitive on a global scale economically by making friendlier corporate tax policy. That was what he led with literally in Iowa. And now you've got Marco Rubio endorsing Donald Trump, who's running against the globalists and free markets and running on protectionist trade policies. I mean, Marco Rubio has... And, you know, now favors industrial policy, is willing to sort of shrug off free markets. This is somebody who has totally changed his basic ideological outlook, at least the way that he presents his basic ideological outlook, to be in line with the leader of the party right now. So I do think that it's the case that I overestimated how much ideology mattered to uh to rank and file Republicans and to elected Republicans over the years. And it is certainly now the case that people are willing to just go where the, the leader is, I think, more than than they had before, in part because of this accelerated information environment we live in. Before we move on to the next topic, if you want to hear more conversation about this, Steve, Jonah, Mike Warren and I were just in New Hampshire for an event up there for dispatch members and the Josiah Bartlett Center for Free Enterprise Uh, And it was a really fun event. You can catch the video of the event on thedispatch.com if you're a member or listen to the skiff. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code dispatch at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, John, I do want to move to what the alternatives are. You know, I think it can be lost on a lot of people if you listen to a lot of political news that the overall trends here are not what you'd expect. So, uh, for instance, there are more registered independents than either of the two parties right now for the first time uh, really in history. But the number two is Republican. People self-identify more as Republicans than they do Democrats. This is pretty much the reverse of what it used to be when you and I got into this world. Uh, There were more self-identified Democrats than anyone else, than Republicans, than independents. Also, when you ask voters within each party uh, how happy they are with their potential nominee, Republican voters are far happier with Donald Trump than Democratic voters are with Joe Biden. And it's like not even close. When you ask voters who's a greater threat to democracy, Democrats edge out Republicans with voters. So I want you to talk a little bit about the left's choice and this third party option, whether it's actually going to be viable this cycle in a way that it hasn't been now that we really do have the two nominees, at least for the time being. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that, I mean, the, the frustration with these two is what it's all going to come down to. And I think actually it's going to be the politically disengaged who are going to decide this. You know, right now there's a really interesting, uh, you know, CNN report, uh, Biden officials talking to CNN saying that something like three out of four uh, undecided voters still don't believe that it's going to be a Trump Biden rematch. So I don't think we really know how this is going to shake out until that's really locked in. I think after New Hampshire, that'll register, right? I think the, all the news will come out that, yeah, Biden's got this thing. Uh, Trump's got this thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, Mike Warren wrote that great piece for us recently just on, you know, the actual movement that's happening among no labels to get on the ballot lines. Um, you know, RFK Jr.'s uh, surprisingly high poll numbers. Uh, I think there really is an opportunity for someone to pull off a, a large percentage, a pro-like percentage. Um, I'm still very skeptical, very, very, very skeptical that um, a third-party candidate uh, would actually win any electoral votes. But you know, I'm 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 willing to be shocked and surprised. Uh, but this election could be very, very different. Um, I talked to a lot, like I said, a lot of Nikki Haley voters. You know, while some were ready to vote for Biden, others were were talking up no labels. They're definitely going to have a unity ticket ready to go in March. Uh, so yeah, I think there is a real, real appetite, um, real appetite for that. Steve, there's a, there's good news for the no labels type efforts, ballot access. They've actually put in the time earlier than, um, other efforts in the past where it's like, oh no, I don't like these candidates. We're going to run someone else. And then they forget that you actually have to have your name on the ballot. No labels has been putting in the work on that, which is impressive, but you still have a problem with it, which is how electoral votes are allocated in this country. It's state by state, except for uh, Nebraska and uh, Maine, which do do it by congressional district. But basically, you still have to win a state um, in order to get any electoral votes. So doesn't it seem more probable that a third party, even a very popular one, would be not getting any electoral votes? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's possible. Um, I, I think we start the, the beginning of 2024 and look ahead to the next 11 months. And um, because of the underlying volatility, things that seem unlikely or not possible may become possible pretty quickly. Um, 
you know, and I think we can look at the last eight to 10 years of politics, really longer, look at the past 25, 30 years in American politics and uh, come to the conclusion that a lot of things that seem unlikely eventually happen. There were a couple polling results over the past uh, week that I think bode well for a no labels type candidacy if we see a Trump-Biden um, rematch. There was a entrance poll uh, of Iowa caucus goers on the Republican side asking, I mean, that was that that was who they were of, of the people who voted or, or participated in Republican caucuses in Iowa. Some 31 percent said that they found um, that they would find voting for a convicted felon troubling or disqualifying. I don't remember the exact language. So basically one out of three uh, Republican caucus goers. If that's the case, come next fall, um, that would sink Donald Trump, even against an enfeebled Joe Biden, if they if they stay there. Um, if a third of those Republicans found, if a third of Republican, the, the Republican electorate found uh, voting for a convicted felon, if Donald Trump is in fact convicted of a felony, problematic. Um, again, that, that makes him, uh, I think, a very difficult, it's difficult to see him winning. So where do those voters go? I mean, we've talked here before about the pretty consistent polling that people don't want this Trump-Biden matchup. Match I was uh, with David Drucker uh, yesterday in New Hampshire at a Nikki Haley event, and he asked a couple um, who had emerged from the event or actually tried to get into the event and, and, and couldn't because there were too many journalists in a small little coffee shop, um, <laughs> what they thought about, you know, why they were there for, for Nikki, what they thought about the general election. And, and they said they were not going to be voting for Donald Trump or Joe Biden in a general election. And, and this woman said, I can't believe that this country is looking at the possibility of two 80 year olds running against one another. And, and Drucker, uh, very perceptively asked, asked her husband who's standing next to her, and how old are you, sir? <laughs> and he says, 85. <laughs> but they made very clear in this, in this conversation that they had with, with Drucker, where I was just eavesdropping, um, they were not, they weren't doing it. So they were going to either stay home. He said he was going to stay home. He'd go out and vote for a third party candidate, but they were not going to vote for, for Trump and Biden. I do think given the level of um, frustration and I would say disgust with the possible Biden-Trump rematch, um, a, a good no-labels ticket could be competitive and a good no-labels ticket could win electoral votes. Jonah, last word on third parties. Um, actually, first word on old people. I just want to make one quick point about the old people thing. One of the weird disconnects between young people and old people is that old people recognize the limitations of old age in candidates, in themselves, in life. Young people, because they're, as a statistical matter, dumber and less experienced than old people, are more likely to overestimate the abilities of young people to do things. And so you get young people who think that young candidates are awesome and terrific and don't lack experience because they don't value experience. And old people are like, I know what it's like at 80 or 85 to try and get out of bed on a cold day. I can't be president now, you know? <laughs> and so I think the, I just think it's interesting because there was an attempt for a while to sort of raise the ugly specter of ageism in these conversations. And the problem is, is that a vast amount of old people are the ones leading these arguments about how age is actually an irrelevant factor. Um, look, I think third parties could have a big effect. I think Low voter turnout can have a massive effect. There's going to be so much disgust with, first of all, the candidates, but second of all, the ugliness of the campaigns where, you know, because the essence of Trump political strategy is, I know you are, but what am I? Right? He wants Biden to be impeached so he can say he's, he was impeached too. He um, is constantly talking about how Biden's the real threat to democracy, Right? So you're going to have a race with two people screaming at each other that they're the real Hitler. And that's going to lead a lot of voters to say, I want no part of this. Some of them will say, OK, I will give 
Robert Kennedy Jr., Liz Cheney, Cornell West, somebody a second or a third look, but then a whole bunch of other them are just going to stay home or write in, you know, some random name. And so it's so hard to game out because low voter turnout makes Trump's smaller slice of the electorate a possible majority of the actual electorate, right? I mean, he has a ceiling of 46, 48% of the, of the electorate. Well, in a really low turnout election, if all of them show up, that could be 52% of the people who vote and he could win the popular vote. You know, it's, so it's just really, really difficult to game out a lot of this stuff. But yeah, there's a real opportunity. It requires a real personality that people can rally behind. If Tom Hanks got into the race as the no labels guy, I think it would be a Hanks presidency in 2025. See, I've been saying Matthew McConaughey. I feel like we're on Possible the same too. page, yeah. um, except that I think Matthew McConaughey might actually consider it if they asked. But there's been no indication that no labels is looking outside of the usual suspects, has there? John? Have- I, I, Mike and Drucker have really been much uh, cl- closely uh, talking to interviewing, covering the no labels thing. So I've, I don't have a great read on outside the box. Uh, I've, I've just seen the reporting that they've done on that. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think they're looking for people who will appeal to voters as experienced and, and credible so that they so that they they don't come off as kind of flaky. Um, but can I give you my more cynical? Yeah, sure. At least for that group, they're appealing to people who are big donors to no labels like that. Their focus group is the very people mm-hmm. who are no, the most no labely people and funding the effort, um, you know, with money, yes, but also with sort of, you know, time and energy and attention, not thinking about the electorate as a whole, who has no idea who Joe Manchin is and has even less of an idea of who Larry Hogan is. And their whole point is they do not like the current system. So why in the world would they elect two people who are very much entrenched in that system? Yeah, I also think I think it's a very good point about the donor capture, you know, like, you're focus grouping possible no labels candidates to no labels donors. Yeah. And the people who are no labels donors love Larry Hogan, right? That's right. Um, As do I, but like. I, I do too. I mean, Larry Hogan is an honorable and decent man, and I'd be yes. happy to have him be president of the United States. That said, because it's funny you say that, because I had a similar take, but I didn't think about the donor part of it, which is that if you're really into the no labels argument, um, part of your critique of why Trump became president is this celebrity unqualified for the job, but celebrity name ID thing. And so the idea of actually leaning into that by doing it again with an Oprah Winfrey thing feels like you're betraying your exact critique of what got us Trump. And I could see that being limiting to their imagination as well. I think that could be limiting. I mean, I think that the, the, the donor thing could certainly be a factor. But if you if you look at the kind of people that they are talking um, about, these are also people who, by definition, are willing to jump from the two party system yeah. that has you know probably served them well. But making a critique of the two party system, in effect, saying this has gotten us to where it is. I mean, I I would expect that whoever is the no labels nominee would make the kinds of arguments that Jonah's made that we've made about the primary system, about the bad incentives in politics. So I think you you would have someone while maybe born of of that system who are distancing themselves from it, which I think could have some appeal. Look, I'll just say that I don't really care who's on the top and who's the VP slot between Tom Hanks and Matthew McConaughey. You know, probably Tom Hanks on top, but it Mm -hmm. really I I don't feel strongly. All right, let's move on. Uh, Steve, obviously coming to you to explain to us what is happening with Iran at this point. The Houthis respond. There's Pakistan. This is all it's moving pretty quickly. And yet we seem very focused on other things in this country. Yeah, this has been a weird week uh, with respect to Iran. Um, but I think it highlights sort of the, the 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 dangers that you have with an Iran that seems sort of on a on a hair trigger at the moment after having provoked um, this potential wider regional conflict. Um, you had the, the Biden administration finally respond to provocations from the Houthis with what was a pretty serious uh, set of of counterstrikes. And the Houthis seem to be somewhat chastened in in what they're doing. They haven't stopped their attacks, but they're certainly less frequent. Um, 
the you know the question of of how Iran is is looking at I think is is still open at this point, but for for months since October seventh massacre in Israel, the Biden administration had been you know not only telegraphing through policy choices but actually s- stating outright that they were afraid of escalation to regional conflict and that that was constraining their responses to Iranian bad behavior. And what I think that did was give in effect a green light for Iran to continue and even escalate its bad behavior. And that's what we saw all of that coming on the heels of three, almost three years of conciliatory policy choices from the Biden administration, I think left Iran thinking that it had a lot of room to maneuver. Um, and it has maneuvered in, in that spirit. Um, the Pakistan, the, the series of events with Pakistan this week was interesting, unnerving, and I think ends in a place that makes it kind of hard to understand what happened. The Iranians struck what they called terrorist camps inside of Pakistani territory. The Pakistanis responded, striking um, what they said were terrorist uh, efforts inside Iran. And there was, uh, I think, for a moment, this this fear of these regional powers, one of them nuclear, one of them potentially or on the verge of of being nuclear armed states, uh, real escalation um, in in the region. Then both governments, um, which are both experiencing in sort of different ways, some domestic instability, domestic political concerns, went kind of overboard to say, hey, we don't want this to grow. We don't want this to, to expand. Uh, there was a statement suggesting that the, I think it was the pa- on the Pakistani side saying that the Iranians were a, a friendly government, um, that they didn't really mean any additional harm, but they had to respond and they didn't want to, um, to, to sort of sit back and, and do nothing. Um, I don't know where this this leaves us, um, particularly with respect to Pakistan and Iran, but I do think it suggests that the Iranians are are sort of looking for for ways in which they um, could be losing face internationally and looking weak to their domestic uh, political opponents and and potential rivals. So it it sets up a, a situation where I think you know, more instability is more likely than further stability in the the coming weeks. Yeah, I mean, Jonah, what's been interesting about that is that, I mean, this is my theory, at least, it's not the foreign policy that affects American politics. It is the domestic effect of a foreign issue. Uh, You know, so October 7th, I think, you know, if we had had then an election in November, very much could have affected American politics, not because of what was going on in Israel, but because of what was going on in the United States, because of what was going on in Israel, if that makes sense. So I guess, for sure, yeah. you know, looking at the Houthis, it's sort of like, well, you know, maybe if shipping got delayed in your Amazon, you know, same day delivery wasn't working, that could have a big effect. Uh, but, you know, more seriously, like, truly, if people are worried about a war with Iran, it could have an effect, not because they're so worried about Iran, but because they're worried about their sons and daughters fighting Iran. Yeah. And I think, hearkening back to our discussion earlier in the podcast where I brought up George H.W. Bush's no new taxes pledge. And you said that hurt him because it seemed weak rather than because of the policy stuff. Foreign policy is an area where the perception of weakness affects domestic perceptions a lot, regardless of the actual policy issues. Um, Because we've got this lizard brain thing about how our commander must be strong in world and fight and all these kinds of things. And, and well, and peace okay. through strength actually worked very yeah, well. For sure. Yeah. No, look, I'm, I'm okay with that, that bias because I actually think it's one of the things that, that brings you peace. Um, and security is actually, you know, I keep harping on this point is that the, all the people out there screwing with us, we shouldn't be worried about them escalating. They should be worried about us escalating. And, <laughs> and in that world, we won't need to escalate nearly as much. And the delay in, in, in striking the hooties, and no one even talks about striking the blowfish, has been a real... Oh, Jonah. So bad. Everyone's so going to love that. Everyone. <laughs> so bad. The comments bad. are going to blow up with other dad jokes. Unbelievable. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I just want to read one thing because I think it's sort of interesting. I had a, a friend of mine the other day um, text me this ridiculous lead from the New York Times 
and I wanted to read it on on air when we were doing this segment, and then I discovered that it no longer is the lead of the New York Times story. But um, this was the original lead before, I guess, it was ghost edited. I don't know. Maybe there's a correction on the site somewhere. In an expansion of, of hostilities rippling out from the Israel-Hamas war, Pakistan said on Thursday that it had carried out strikes inside Iran a day after Iranian forces attacked what they said were militant camps in Pakistan. Now, the new lead on this New York Times piece does not say rippling out of <laughs> the Israel-Hamas war because, in fact, those ripples had nothing to do with the Pakistan-Iran conflict. Look, it's all the Jews' fault, Jonah, and we're not quite sure why or how. Don't worry about it. Rippling. That's what ripples are. You don't know why ripples happen. So, like, this has been a... I write this column every few years where sh journalistic shorthand is often the Middle East conflict is always Israel, whoever, right? There are books called the Middle East, uh, you know, the Middle East uh, conflict reader, and it's all things about Israel. Meanwhile, there have been a lot of wars in the Middle East between countries that aren't Israel all the time for reasons that have nothing to do with Israel. And I, I do think that to the extent if there's more dis destabilization in the Middle East that is not re actually related to Israel, um, that could have domestic problems for Biden because it'll seem like, especially to his base, his support for the Israel-Hamas conflict, which is the single explanation for everybody who, who sides against Israel, for everything bad in the Middle East. I mean, like Saudi Arabia can't have democracy because of what Israel is doing to the Palestinians. Um, uh, you could see that feeding into, I think, an unfair narrative against Biden and an unfair narrative against Israel, but it has real appeal to a lot of uh, journalists who write about who want to blame our policy towards Israel for everything going wrong in the region and everything going on domestically. All right, before we move on to not worth your time, question mark, uh, I want to propose then to tie this entire podcast together, my new uh, evolutionary biology theory. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bring it all together. Just wait for it. Steve, the reason that Republican voters like Donald Trump is actually an evolutionary feature that Jonah referenced briefly, the lizard brain thing, that's actually that uh, humans over time recognize peace through strength has worked to keep them safe. They wouldn't have called it that. But that strong leaders who seem very threatening have generally led to fewer wars uh, with their neighbors. And those humans obviously were then more likely to have more humans. And so our little lizard brains are actually attuned to someone like a Donald Trump. Now, of course, not all evolutionary features work out well in every situation. But now I feel like I have a grand unified theory of Donald Trump uh, uh, sort of flicking this like part of our brains that actually is evolutionarily wired for a Donald Trump-like figure. I mean, if Donald Trump is the sort of natural end of natural selection, uh, people might want to do some rethinking of what natural <laughs> selection means. Um, Look, I mean, I think it takes a lot to come to the conclusion that what Donald Trump represents um, in the policy sense, to go back to our earlier discussion, is strength on the international stage. Um, no, 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 don't don't get too far into the details, right? Because evolutionarily, it's the reason that sugar tastes good is because you wanted more calories. You can't get into like which sugars and why. It's like, no, no, like... Things that make you fatter taste better. Things that are green vegetables don't taste as good. That's not because they inherently have any taste whatsoever. It's just what our uh, brains now tell us based on evolution. So same thing, right? Donald Trump tastes good to certain human brains because evolutionarily, those types of people uh, were more likely to lead to further generations. So I'm not sure I'm tracking exactly. Um... If the argument is Donald Trump projects sort of brute strength that it's most basic, I can understand your argument. People are drawn to that. People want to be protected. People, in, in, you know, at a time when they don't trust institutions, when they look in, around the world and see threats, they look at somebody like Donald Trump. He's fighting for them. He's on their side. At its most basic, I mean, I do think that that's part of the explanation for what we're, we're seeing from Donald Trump. I would just say as maybe an, an asterisk for people who still care about policy or pay attention to such matters, 
Donald Trump was not a uniformly strong, quote unquote, strong president on the international stage. You look at sort of the, the, the softs he made to Kim Jong-un, his attempt to negotiate with the Taliban. He now says he would negotiate with Iran um, and, you know, offer offering concessions all the while. I don't think of him as a particularly strong president, even if he did some strong things like take out Qasem Soleimani and, and uh, beat his chest over NATO. Yes. And as it turns out, having double cheeseburgers over and over and over again may not be good for you either, even though they taste delicious. Uh, okay. Not worth your time. Question mark. So I did the broad off Scott and I here for the Packers game. It obviously was good luck, Steve. So you're welcome. And for those who have been writing in about the results of the broad off, you're going to be surprised and maybe disappointed. So first of all, we had four, uh, groups. The control group was just brats on the grill. Then we had beer only beer with raw onions, and beer with caramelized onions. And first thing I will tell you is absolutely each group, you didn't, you couldn't do a blind taste test because it was so obvious. Like the flavor just absolutely was in every single brat, every single element of the flavor. Um, You could just taste it entirely, which is really cool and makes us want to experiment more with different uh, test subjects now. Uh, Different brats, different beers, different onions. Who knows? Because the unlike you know, brining a turkey or something where you're like, oh, maybe I can taste that something had been done to it. Like, this isn't like that. It's like a one-to-one flavor transfer. But as it turned out, the winner of the brought off was the control group. It was <laughs> it was just the brought on the grill, but then taking the caramelized onions that had been simmering in the beer and putting those on top. So basically beer caramelized onions on a plain grilled brat with the mustard of your choice. And we did have three different mustards as well. Uh, So I don't know, Steve, if you think that's sacrilege. As I said, we are now going to do more testing, really drilling down on each of those variables. And switching the beers, which I think is important. Different beers can can produce different results as well. I'm interested in John's take too, since he is a uh, Wisconsinite from um, northwestern Wisconsin. I, I guess I'm, I mean, I'm... Oh, this I'm, is interesting also. So, Steve, wait, which part of Wisconsin are you from? I am from Wauwatosa. Okay, so you're from the bottom. John, you're from the top? I'm from uh, 40 minutes east of St. Paul, Minnesota, but my parents are from the same suburb as Steve Hayes. Okay, and then Scott is from the middle, basically. It's m- middle south, right? M- middle south, yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, south of Green Bay. Yeah. So um, uh, just a couple thoughts. And and I was surprised and encouraged by the feedback that we got on the brat segment last <laughs> last week. A lot of people have lots of thoughts. And m- maybe it's because we all just want a distraction from the other stuff. But um, I sent Steve pictures at like every step of the way. I was like, here are onions. <laughs> I will say I will say you look like you did this very well. I mean, your caramelized onions were on point. It, it, the, the whole thing looked pretty great. I, I'm. I'm interested that you came to the conclusion that you did. I, I think I would never probably uh, have come to the same conclusion. I don't think I would have ever chosen a simply grilled brat over brats that involve beer in any in any way. <laughs> um, I, I would I would I was out of town last week. Sarah graciously invited me over to partake in the experiment, but I couldn't. I would like to join you at some point to actually watch how this happened. The, the main, we've got a, a, a great um, sort of dispatch supporter. I won't use his name because I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I have permission to, but who's written back and forth with me on this uh, a number of times. And he makes the very correct observation that the reason that you want the beer involved is because it allows the, the brats to plump up mm-hmm. and then you Which can, then you can, um, get the char on the outside without losing the juiciness on the inside, which gives it the snap that you want when you, when you bite through if, if all of this, if grilled properly. So that's why I like the, the beer soaked brats with, I usually, as I said last week, I usually do some combination of caramelized onions and raw onions in the simmer and then take them out, cook them almost all the way through, take them out, flash them on the grill, pretty high, higher than most people probably would recommend. So you get the sear and you get the snap when you bite into them. That's sort of the key. I wouldn't think 
and I'm interested in, in how this worked for you, Sarah, that the simply grilled brats would give you the same juiciness and the snap that you want. So first of all, my in-laws introduced me to something called snappy grillers that are white hot dogs that look really disgusting. And I never realized until this moment why they might be called snappy grillers. But now I think I follow that. Um, I don't understand their point on the world. Like hot dogs are better than snappy grillers and brats are better than hot dogs. So why do snappy grillers exist? Um, John, do y'all have snappy grillers up in your neck of the woods? Never heard of them. Okay, interesting. Steve? So not to get too deep deep in, in the sausage world, but here we are. So there's a, probably the best, um, my favorite sausage maker in the world is a, is a company called Usingers in Wisconsin, um, based in Milwaukee. And they have, you know, they don't do sort of traditional hot dogs, but they do wieners that have a very hard casing. And almost all of their sausages have this kind of hard casing. And the wieners, when you serve them to kids at first, the kids don't like them because the casing is too hard and it's too snappy. You have to really bite into it. And when you crunch it, it like, you know, you know that you've gotten through. But the, <laughs> the so HR, kids don't like them HR. at first. <laughs> kids don't like them at first, but they they love them when they get used to them. I th- I don't know that those are snappy grillers like John. I've never also heard of snappy grillers, but it seems to me that's an apt description of what Usingers actually does. And they're sounds they're like great. a dude who plays the banjo. So I actually think the snappy grillers were Usingers, but I'm not sure about that. We'll see in the comment section. Well, then if okay. you didn't like him, you're just wrong. Okay. Uh, so and also in the comment section, and John, I'm curious if you've ever tried this. There was some suggestion that at least for the purposes of the experiment, we should also try the equivalent of a reverse sear. So grill first and simmer in the beer after. And that that would also be interesting. I'm curious about that. I'm also curious if maybe we actually simmered too long, Steve. And so there was actually too much beer flavor that was overpowering the simply delicious broadness. John, do you have thoughts on that? Uh, you know, I've only, uh, I, I adhere to tradition. Uh, usually that is uh, just, you know, boiling that in the beer and then grilling. Uh, I have only on one occasion just grilled uh, brats on the grill. I did Whole30 a year ago with my wife. And it was quite good because, you know, while the beer gets that, you know, the plumpness, the juiciness on the grill, it's just the fat soaking in the fat. It just, you know, uh, so 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 it was quite good. So, and I stick to, you know, sauerkraut, mustard, you know, raw onions, the, the, the basics. I've never done anything fancy like caramelized onions. But, you know, a taste test sounds like a great way to figure this out. Jonah, do you have brought feelings despite not being Midwestern, but coming from another area where sausages are quite popular? I love brats. I, I, I feel incredibly excluded from this entire conversation. But then again, <laughs> I was not, up to speed on this whole parboiling brats and beer thing and has caused a lot of discussion here at home with my wife who let us not forget went to Marquette. Yeah. Um, oh, there we go. And uh, was a uh uh a f- a a fixture, a mainstay at Wolski's Tavern. So, uh did she her, close Wolski's? Uh she, her she has had many cars many with that times. bumper sticker. Um, and um, so uh, I'm intrigued by all of this. I'm, I'm, I'm still a little dubious about the necessity of all of these extra steps, but uh, I'm open to it. So I, 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 I'm going to have to do my own experiments with this. That's it all. sounds like we're going to have a dispatch party, invite everyone over, and we'll do this the right way. And uh, just to update, I did figure out Snappy Grillers, interestingly enough, uh, are not Wisconsin-based. They are Syracuse-based, which makes perfect sense because my father-in-law is actually from Syracuse originally and then moved to Wisconsin. So he's bringing over his Syracuse roots <laughs> into Wisconsin. So thank you, Dispatch listeners, for joining. Don't forget to check out our event with the Josiah Bartlett Center. Uh, video and audio available for Dispatch members. And also just a special thank you to the Josiah Bartlett Center for their incredible kindness. During this podcast, I have been eating the chocolates from Dancing Lion in Manchester. I don't know if chocolates are okay to eat for breakfast, but that's why I'm an adult and not a child anymore. And these are incredible. You know, sometimes we plug things um, because they're sponsors ahead of time. And sometimes we just want someone to sponsor us. So Dancing Lion, (laughs) I'm just saying I am available to sponsor, for you to sponsor me 
because these were really good chocolates. So thank you, Josiah Bartlett Center. And I received I received two bottles of very nice Spanish wine from Duke Drew Klein uh, and, and our friends at the Josiah Bartlett Center. And Jonah got a pretty good, pretty nice uh, box of cigars out of the deal. I did indeed. I did so indeed. that was great. Okay, cigars and wine, fine. I'm just going to read you this. At Dancing Lion Chocolate, we craft 20 to 200 of each truffle or bonbon using some of the world's rarest chocolate. Each creation in this box is a limited edition work of art. We will never make it again. You'll find a photo and description of each. And then when you go to that website with the photos and description, it gives you the date that it was made. And it's right. Like, they're never going to make that again. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah. DancingLion.us, what's in my box? (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys, we'll see you next week.